Let's take our Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25. We're starting a new series today that's going to go through a good part of the fall. And the series is called Small. Small. All right, I know it's kind of a strange series title, right? The idea for this series came to me as I was reading a very insightful and very encouraging book uh, over the last couple weeks called Small Church Essentials. And I will be quoting it throughout many of our studies, but the premise of the book is that many times uh, smaller churches are seen as unhealthy and smaller churches are seen as closed off to growth and smaller churches are seen as insignificant compared to larger churches. And many pastors have a insecurity complex because we go to conferences and we're told that if you're not growing and you don't have multi-campuses, you must not be doing something right. And we've all lived under that delusion for years and years, but the author argues that small churches actually have many advantages in terms of discipleship, in terms of building relationships, in terms of some of the opportunities that we have to break down some of the barriers that a large church might have. Now, he's not denigrating large churches. He's just saying there's a reason why there are small churches and there's a reason why there are big churches. And the Spirit's really used that to give me some fresh insights and, and some, some fresh direction for the church. And we had, I want to tell you, unusual, unusual fantastic leadership meeting Thursday night. I praise the Lord for that. I have never felt in 30 years of ministry so encouraged coming home from a meeting. I joke with the elders and deacons that I have um, spiritual PTSD from elders meetings over the years of the trauma of, of disunity and agendas and egos. Not one shred of that Thursday night. Praise the Lord for our leaders. And praise the Lord for his provision. And we are developing some really exciting new concepts that we're going to share to you very, very soon. But we strongly believe that the Lord has his hand on this church. And we strongly believe that he is ready to do something just awesome in the days ahead. So I want to really encourage you to be praying, asking the Lord to give us wisdom and direction as a church as we move forward and we really see God's hand. Now, because of that concept, uh, I began to study all the times in the Bible where something small turned into something big. And it's been a really fascinating study for me, both in the ways that we're blessed by the Lord, which is most of the cases where the Lord takes something very small and blesses it in a unique way, but also in some of the ways in which something small became very destructive. And that's what we're going to study this morning from the book of Genesis. Now let me give you an overall uh, kind of spiritual uh, principle for this series. Here's the spiritual principle. No matter how small an object or a decision, no matter how small an object or a decision might seem, it can have tremendous spiritual impact. No matter how small an object or a decision might seem, it can have tremendous spiritual impact. We're going to look at all the ways that plays out in our own lives, and then we're going to look uh, at ways that that uh, can use, be used for influence uh, as a church to reach people for Christ. So this morning we're going to focus on the first small object, okay, that changed the lives of two brothers. And the object we're going to look at this morning is a bowl of stew. A bowl of stew, all right? Genesis chapter 25, 
Start in verse 27. When the boys grew up, speaking of Jacob and Esau, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I'm famished. Therefore his name was called Edom, which means red. But Jacob said, first sell me your birthright. Esau said, behold, I'm about to die. So of what use then is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, first swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Uh, Esau's decision here seems so outlandish and so illogical that it's almost hard to believe that this is a true account, especially after we define what it is that a birthright involved. When we see that in a moment, we're going to say, why in the world would anybody make this decision? And yet we know this is true. We know this is not some, uh, some uh, fanciful story that's out there. Never refer to the Bible, never refer to the narrative as stories the story of Noah and the ark, or the story of the Red Sea. They're not stories, they're historical accounts. And sometimes when we use that word story, it seems like it's make-believe. This is not make-believe, this is something that actually happened. And, and here he makes this decision, and we know it's true because not only it's in the word of God, but this one little decision, this one momentary lapse in judgment affects Esau, it affects his family, it affects the nation, and it affects all of the legacy. Now just to name one thing that's obvious at the front, God refers to himself all throughout scripture as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and what? Tell me. Jacob. Should be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau because Esau was the oldest. Esau was the one that had the birthright. Esau was the one that should have been in the line. But here's where a decision completely changed not only his life, but the whole narrative. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Esau made this decision in the moment. He traded stew for a birthright. And Jacob later on would be named Israel and become the father of that nation, and have 12 sons who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. Think about just this one decision that changed everything. Now, the primary reason why Esau made such a poor decision was because of the state of his heart. And the Holy Spirit here, we've got to read between the lines a little bit, but the truth is obvious. The Holy Spirit doesn't detail that in the narrative, but we know that's true. We know that Esau's heart was not right because of the way that he treats the birthright. Now, what was the birthright? The birthright was very important to the Jews, so much so that they passed laws about it, delineating what was involved. So there were really five things that happened with the birthright. The oldest son was given five distinct advantages. Number one advantage was that he became the priest of the family. He was the one that, that kind of was the spiritual overseer of the family as the recipient of the birthright. He also received a double portion of the inheritance. When the will was made and everybody was given their part, he got double of everybody else. 
He became the head of the family. He was responsible after the parents died for the property and for his siblings and any daughters that were unmarried. He was given judicial authority over the family by the father. So he's the spiritual head. He's the relational head. He's the judicial head. He gets a double portion of the blessing. And the fifth component was that he had a special covenant relationship with the Lord. Now, especially as Abraham's grandson, you know that that's absolutely true. And later, when Jacob takes the birthright from him, he doesn't seem to get property, but he does receive the Lord's blessing, and he does receive the protection of being the one out of the covenant. Now, despite all the significance of this, despite the fact that all that was on the line, both personally and spiritually, Esau apparently did not care about it because he's willing to sell it for a small bowl of stew. Now, that leads us into some truth. I want to encourage you to take some notes because we're going to have three truths that we can apply this morning. And the first one is right here. Let me give it to you. We have to guard against taking the Lord's blessing for granted. We have to guard against taking the Lord's blessing for granted. It's interesting when you lead singing and are part of the worship team, how you can feel the, the atmosphere of the room. Last week, we were energetic, we were alive, we sang maybe better than we ever have in eight years of being a church. This morning, not being, I'm not picking, it was a little dead. And it's interesting because of what we're celebrating this morning. And sometimes this happens to us, right? I'm not being critical, it happens to me many times. Sometimes we're kind of like, yeah, it's great. Yeah, we had communion, it was a good service, and, and we sang about the cross, but, but I don't know, I just, I don't, what's going on is busy. School started, and I'm tired of hot weather. Yeah, I remember that in January. And, and, and I'm just kind of, I don't know. There's a lot going on, Paul. Don't, don't pick. I'm not picking on you. I'm just saying this happens, right? Sometimes we become a little bit, we just kind of take it for granted. And Esau was clearly, clearly calloused about the advantages and the privileges that the Lord has given him. Here's the son of Isaac, the, the, the son of Rebekah, he's the grandson of Abraham. Abraham was called the friend of God. Think about that. Imagine if your grandfather was called the friend of God. Uh, that puts a little pressure on you, right? That's a little bit of a gravitas there. And Abraham had lived the first 15 years of Esau's life. Abraham was still alive. So we have to think as Abraham's visiting because the families all lived together that Abraham would sit young Esau down and say, Esau, let me tell you what happened. God met with me and he called me to leave my nation and he said, I'm going to make a covenant with you and you're going to be a great nation and, and, and you're going to have as many descendants as the stars in the sky and the sands on the sea. Esau, you don't understand. <laughs> let me tell you, God is merciful and God's made a covenant and, and you're going to be the next in line of this great nation that God's provided for you. Oh, Esau, it's so wonderful. It's, it's so powerful. It's so amazing. So Esau is in a different position than any of his friends, than anybody else in the world, which is what makes this poor decision so tragic. And just by way of parallel for a moment for us as believers, we have the same advantages we have the same advantages. We're children of the covenant. This table we just celebrated, this is the covenant. This is the covenant, the new covenant in my blood, Jesus says. 
You're redeemed. You're forgiven. You're cleansed. I've, I've entered into a new relationship with you. And you have all my help and all my blessing and all my promises, just like Esau did. So what we experience is every bit as great, maybe greater than what Abraham and Esau had in front of them. So you say, well, what caused Esau to make a poor decision? Yeah, he's hungry. I get that. But, but why would you make such a poor decision? Well, we know it's largely because of a spiritual indifference before the Lord. But I believe there are a couple other reasons. And I think if Esau was here this morning... I think he would try to defend himself a little bit. I think he would say, well, there were some things going on, there were some circumstances, and, and maybe in the moment he tried to justify himself. So let's examine a couple of the reasons that he might have given in the moment. One is that there was a lot of family conflict. There was a lot of tension in the home. Verse 28, look at it. It says that his dad loved him because he was a hunter, but his mom clearly favor Jacob. Now, many of you live or have been raised or have family situations now that are challenging like that. There's favoritism. There's dysfunction. There's all kinds of mess going on. Maybe there's been a divorce. Maybe there's just family division. Maybe you're looking at the holidays going, really, do we have to do this again? Like, I know exactly what this is going to turn to. And that can build in us, right? That can build a lot of resentment. Now, this reminds us as parents that we have to be very careful about how we treat our kids because sin and disunity in the home negatively affects them. And the implication from the text is there was conflict and rivalry in the family. Mom and dad weren't unified. They weren't in sync. And it affected the kids. But listen, as children... If you're in that situation, even if you're 15 or 50, it doesn't really matter. If that's the situation, you cannot allow that, that dysfunction to lead you to make poor decisions. We go, well, you don't know my home life, Paul, and you don't know how crazy it is. And my mom's doing this, and my dad's doing this, and they don't love the Lord. They're screaming at each other and throwing pots and pans. Yeah, but that doesn't, that shouldn't lead you then to follow suit. I've said many times, we got to break some of these chains. If there's adultery in your family, there's divorce in your family, don't walk down that path just because everybody else did it. Take a stand and say, I'm done with this. We're going to break this chain right now. Lead your parents to Christ. Witness to them more strongly. I don't know. We've got to do something. But we can't just say, well, because of this, that, that led me to sin. Because Esau might have said, well, my family's messed up. My mom loves me. My dad loves my brother. And I don't know what to do. Second reason I think he might have stated was he wasn't considered the cultured one. It says, look at the text, Jacob was peaceful and he lived in the tents. And the implication is that he's thoughtful and studious and intelligent and he's cooking dinner and, and he's erudite and, and he's the, the cool one. And it depicts Esau as the outdoorsman, the hunter, the manly man, kind of wild, kind of irresponsible, kind of, kind of off the chain a little bit, very impulsive. Now, Esau may have resented those differences. He may have felt less than socially. And how many know that comparing ourselves to other people socially can mess up your mind? Become so damaging. Social approval is so 
strongly emphasized in our everyday life, and it's easy to get discouraged, and it's easy to get insecure because of it. And if that's leading you to jealousy and coveting and resentment and anger and fear, then close your account and get off of it. You will live to see tomorrow if you don't have Twitter or you don't have Facebook or you don't have Instagram. These are not, you know, rights that are in the Constitution. They're just stuff that tends to make us unhappy. And I'm not just saying that opinion. There have been studies about it. So that social resentment, that social anxiety. And then look at it. I think when you see verses 31 and 33, I think Esau may have also been a little subject to Jacob's badgering. Jacob certainly saw what his brother was like. He saw that he was spiritually indifferent and impulsive. So this may have been an ongoing campaign for years. I don't know. Maybe it was. Maybe it wasn't. But, but it, it couldn't have been the first time that they had talked about the birthright because there had been conflict and competition since day one. Esau was the first one out of the womb. But as he's coming out, the text says that Jacob grabbed his heel. Now, think about little babies, right? How much grip do they have when they're being born? They're pretty helpless, right? They're, they're, their hands are tiny. They're like the size of my little finger. So, so how much are you going to be able to grab and hold on during the violent birthing process? How much can you grab and hold on? And yet this is a metaphor for their relationship because Esau was first, but Jacob was always angling. He wanted to be first. He wanted to have the rights that Esau didn't care about. So maybe this was an ongoing thing. And finally, now it gets to chapter 25. And maybe Esau's just sick of it. Fine, take it. I just am hungry. Just give me the stew. But I believe the biggest reason is that Esau really didn't want the responsibility of being the grandson of the covenant. Now, you say, where's that in the text? It's not. But why would he be so quick to sell his birthright? The tangible material advantages alone were enough that, that even a foolish person would say, yeah, but, you know, it's double inherited. It's head of the family. It's all this stuff. I, I may, I may want to walk away from it, but it's, it's better than not having anything. So there's a spiritual component to this. I don't believe, and I think this is backed up by Scripture, I don't think Esau desired the hand of the Lord on his life. And I think he felt the pressure, and I think he felt the responsibility to be the next in line, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. And he said, no, I don't want to do that. So he plays around with something that's precious to the Lord. You know, our relationship with the Lord, whether it's mature and passionate or whether it's uh, marginal and passive or whether it's opposed, maybe you just don't want anything to do with the Lord. Maybe you just love walking in your sin. I want to tell you right now, it will always affect your decision making. Where you stand with the Lord, what you believe about the Lord, your relationship with the Lord will always affect every single decision. And for Ethrite, Esau, he did not guard against this feeling of taking the Lord's blessing for granted. Now that leads us into the second truth in the text. And I want to see 
Here, the lasting effect of Esau's decision. Here's truth number two, and this one's really challenging. Quick, impulsive decisions usually have damaging consequences. Quick, impulsive decisions usually have damaging consequences. Now, it seems kind of shocking that a bowl of stew, even for a hungry man, would, would cause this much foolishness that it would cost that much, that, that just having dinner would cost him everything. But how often can that be said for some of the decisions we have made in life? Now, let me, let me be very direct and very personal this morning. Crossing the line sexually with someone you're not married to, leading to a corrupted reputation, or worse, a pregnancy, or, or a misguided marriage because there was no self-discipline. Quitting a job because you were angry and you got upset and you weren't being treated right and you couldn't take it anymore. And then you get out there and you find that there's no work and there's no security. Cutting quarters ethically, cheating on a test, mismanaging money in a business because an opportunity presented itself to get ahead and you thought you could get away with it, but you got caught. There are probably a thousand more examples we could easily come up with where we've made small decisions in the moment, where we've been impulsive instead of doing what is disciplined. You know, the desire for instant gratification is in our DNA. It's in our human nature. We want what we want now. We want what we think will make us happy. And we want it right away. A baby quickly learns, even when it's newborn, that if it cries, somebody's coming. So at the first pang of hunger, at the first moment when the diaper is not clean anymore, what does the baby do? He cries harder. I was in a store the other day, and it wasn't a baby. It was about a four-year-old, and he was screaming bloody murder. I'm like, okay, let's, 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 let's do something over here. Like, this is crazy. But the child had learned, right, that if I scream, I get my way. Any of you that has a two or three-year-old know this world. No means I want it now. Well, you need to do that. No. Well, and we try to reason like, you know, you can reason with a three-year-old. No, I don't want to do that. Run away, hide, whatever, right? Because their way is the only way. And then you get preteens and teenagers, and of course, they know more than everybody. No offense if you're a preteen or a teenager. Think their desires are unique and they want their desires fulfilled immediately. So when their parents or their peers don't comply, they become bitter and angry and resentful and critical. And listen, we can laugh about that, but adults aren't exempt from it either. That's why alcohol abuse and opioid addiction and abortion and divorce are at scary levels because we want pleasure now and we want relief now and when we mess up, we want a quick fix. Now the enemy knows this, which is why since the Garden of Eden, he's been successfully manipulating us to follow after what we want and then he exploits it in our culture. We see strong evidence of that. If you watch advertising today, you'll see how everything is not unique this in six months. So write a note to yourself on your calendar and when May comes around, be sure to give us a call at 1-800-YOU-NEED-THIS-NOW. Bye in the next 10 minutes and we'll send you two. 
you just pay extra shipping and handling of $47.95 per quarter. Right? You guys watch TV. Now, 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 you need it now. Don't wait, don't wait. This offer is going to expire in 10 minutes. Yeah, until you see the next commercial in 20 minutes that says the offer is going to expire in 10 minutes. The enemy exploits this. This is why Amazon is going to control the world. I was in a store yesterday trying to think what store I was in. Oh, I was in a sporting goods store. Beautiful sport, an amazing sporting goods store. We got two of them in town. Saturday, four o'clock, place was empty. I went over to the golf section because I haven't played golf all summer, so I thought I'll hit a couple putts. There were no golf balls. I just pretended. I was, you know, just wanted to play golf. That's all I wanted. Guy's like, can I help you? I'm like, nah, I'm just killing time. My kids are buying stuff. I felt bad for the guy because I've worked in a golf store where nobody came in. I worked in a golf store where we had eight customers a day. So I know that world of retail failing. You know why retail's failing? Because I can click twice and they'll bring it to my door and I don't have to pay tax. It's the perfect solution for a culture that wants it now. A culture that wants to live in the moment. Don't accept delay. Don't take no for an answer. If you can't find it on Amazon, then you can find it on eBay. And if you can't find it on eBay, you can find it on Craigslist. And if you can't find it on Craigslist, just click a couple more sites. You'll find it. Think of the ad campaigns. Do it. Have it your way. Songs. I'm going to get in trouble for this one. Fight for your right to party. Like, come on, fight for it. Everything is now. And here's the thing. There's always a way to identify when we are out of balance in this way. Esau gives us one of the best examples in history of this. And it's right there in verse 32. Whenever there is an over-exaggeration of need, whenever there is an over-exaggeration of need, you know your thinking's wrong. What does he say? Give me some of that red stuff. I'm hungry. Well, some of your birthright. What's the next sentence? Don't you realize I am going to die if I don't get soup in the next two minutes? I'm going to literally expire right here, brother. I'm going to die. It's done. That's called an over-exaggeration of need. How long has it been since he had eaten? Eight hours? Ten hours? It wasn't that long. And so many times we make snap decisions based on a perceived need for pleasure and fulfillment when what we really need is to avoid or at best delay that gratification so we can think in a way that's more wise and more holy. I bet every one of us has ten examples of a time when we've made a fast, impulsive decision that we regretted almost immediately. Almost always, there is wisdom in delay, especially when you align that with prayer. Rarely is a fast decision under pressure a good decision long term. Now, how do I relate to this? You know what I'm talking about when I say that if you've ever sat through a timeshare presentation. When Jacob was young, Annie wasn't even born yet, 
when Jacob was about two, we thought, we got to get to Florida. Like, we're in the Midwest, and it's cold. And I, I told Julie when we moved to Illinois, I said, it's, you know, it's not that bad, honey. It's great. I've lived in Illinois. The winters, they're cold, but, you know, it's, it's all right. And, and the people at the church we were going to said, you know, we've had four mild winters. We don't get any snow. Julie's nine months pregnant. And you know what happens? Four days after we moved in, it snowed 25 inches. It was halfway up our sliding glass door. And she looked at me. You can imagine the look, right? Nine months pregnant. In a new place. No family. 25 inches of snow. And I'll never forget her words. Why did you bring me here? Why did you bring me here? So, Jacob was born. We worked hard for a couple years. We said, we deserve a trip to Florida. So, somebody had called us and said, if you come down, we'll pay for four nights and three days. All you have to do, oh, this is what I love, right? All you have to do, sit through a 90-minute presentation. Cake. I'm getting palm trees and sand like I'm going. So, we flew to Florida, little Jacob in his car carrier. And we spent a couple days at the beach, and then we said, well, we got to get this over with. So we went over to the place, and nice, friendly guy with slicked over hair and a big smile. It's so good to see you. Oh, what a little, precious little baby. I'm so glad, you know, all interested in me. We've never met before. Four hours later, my whole afternoon of being under the palm trees. And this joker's still trying to sell me up timeshare. And you know what? I was so tired, and Jacob was so weary that we almost did it. Well, it makes sense. Come on, we can come down to Florida every year for a week. It's minimal cost. What's the harm? You've been there, right? They have whole companies now to get you out of timeshare commitments. Why? Because a snap decision, even after four hours, is usually a poor decision. Look at Esau. He's trading his life. He's trading his rights. He's trading his future for dinner. Doesn't stop to think about it. Certainly doesn't pray. Doesn't bother to rationalize that a small reward has a huge price. And we know his heart is calloused about it because look at verse 34. It says that he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. There's not a regret. There's not a second thought. There's not a feeling of, uh-oh, I just messed up. It felt good in the moment. And then later on, it says that he started to say, uh-oh. No perspective on his decision-making. And it wasn't just because he was impulsive. Hebrews 12 says Esau was immoral and godless. And you know what the word is for immoral and godless? It's the Greek word pornos. It literally means that he prostituted himself morally making these decisions. That's what years of spiritual indifference will do to you. That's what years of not caring about the Lord, neglecting the Lord, taking the Lord for granted, saying sin doesn't make a, make a difference. I can get away with it. I accepted God when I was 10, and now I'm safe, and I can live however I want. Don't kid yourself. Don't kid yourself. That's pornos. And interestingly, the next verse in Hebrews says that years later, 
Esau desired to inherit the blessing, but he was rejected and he found no place of repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Hey, say, well, does that mean God doesn't forgive? No, what Esau tried to do later is he tried to make it right with God without giving himself to God. He wanted what God had to offer, but he wasn't willing to pay the price. And listen, if you follow Jesus Christ, there's a price. I'm not going to hide that from you this morning. There's a price. You give your life to him, and he doesn't abuse you and treat you as a slave. He welcomes you as a son and puts the best rope on you and says, well done. Esau lived in the moment. Let me tell you, if that's the path you're on this morning, understand that the Lord is ready and willing to deliver you from that because it's a destructive path. It's going nowhere. It's not going to end well. Think about the end game because the end game does not have joy. And even your smallest choices when you're living for the Lord or not living for the Lord will affect you forever. That leads us to the final truth. Quickly, let's look at this. The Lord needs to give us the discernment and discipline to desire what's essential. The Lord needs to give us the discernment and discipline to desire what is essential. Now Esau's rationale, look at it, is that he's hungry and there's food there that will make him not hungry. That red stuff he calls it, mm, sounds yummy to me. I don't know about you, but I love me a big bowl of lentil stew when I've been hot and working in the yard. And he comes in, he says, I'm famished, I need food. And he sees this need, okay, put need in quotes. He sees this need is so critical to his life, to his very existence, that, that he will gladly sacrifice the birthright because the birthright's not going to matter if he dies in two minutes. Again, the problem is perspective. Defining something as essential when it's actually non-essential. Now, someone might say, well, food is essential, Paul. Of course it is. You can't live without it. But you know what? You can go more than 10 hours. I need to have more days where I go 10 hours without food. You can go at least 40 days because we know Jesus did it. People have been on hunger strikes 75 days, 100 days. Now, that's not comfortable, and it's not happy, but it can be done. And in comparison to the essential need to obey the Lord, you better know what's better to choose. Be very careful what you define and justify as a need. See, Esau determined that this was essential when it wasn't, and he discounted something that was indispensable for his personal life and his spiritual life as unimportant. In other words, the spiritual things were nice, but not necessarily better. Stew was better than surrender. Stew was better than sanctification. Stew was better than spiritual maturity. Stew was better than all of that because it was there right now and I want it right now and I'm going to trade whatever I need to to get it. What kind of trades do you and I make? How often do we treat something that seems small as important as valuable for something that costs us far more. We'll compromise our reputation, which the Bible tells us is more valuable than great riches, by not standing up to friends or dragging us down morally, or by not taking a stand for the Lord. We'll negotiate our purity 
by not holding uncompromising standards in dating or by flirting with somebody at work or by carrying on some kind of little secretive online relationship that just kind of walks along the edge, or by looking at images on the computer that we know will create lust in our hearts. Oh, we'll damage our relationships by holding on to a small fence, by, by carrying around a grudge that's years old, not willing to offer forgiveness, let alone clean the issue completely and make it right in that relationship. We'll do that because it feels good to, to nag and hang on to that little thing. And we'll make small decisions to work an extra hour instead of coming home and having dinner with our family or watching an extra show instead of reading the word or, or going to dinner or playing a sport instead of coming to Bible study or prayer meeting. We'll do that or, 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 or we'll, we'll harm our bodies. Little drink there, little extra uh, pill there, little more food when I feel stressed, little more detachment when I get discouraged. Death by a thousand cuts. Just a little more. Just a little. It's not going to harm me. No big deal. No harm, no foul. Listen, please hear my heart. You know me well enough. I'm not saying this to bring guilt or shame. I've done all these things a million times. I'm not standing here this morning as a judge or pointing a finger. I'm saying this is all of us. And the reason we feel guilt and shame is because we end up resenting something that we've traded that's more valuable to something that's immediate for pleasure. That's why it says in the last verse, look at it, Esau despised his birthright. And let me finish with this. We have to see the cost because the enemy takes advantage of these trades. And he often uses people to convince us. That's what happened with Esau. His own brother tricks him. And let's make no mistake this morning. Jacob was wrong to do this. He was wrong to do this. Of course he should have brought some food for his brother. Of course he should have complied and helped his brother. He shouldn't have made this into a bargain. But see, Jacob had a bigger picture in mind. He had an end game he was going for. So he sees his brother's desperation for food, and he bargains with him, and he says, here, I'll give you the stew if you give me all your rights. It seems like a ridiculous trade, and it's one that Esau should have rejected out of hand. Because no one in their right mind would trade a bowl of stew for something so significant. But here's the thing. Get this truth. Esau wasn't in his right mind. He wasn't in his right mind because sin and selfishness, when it's in charge of our decision making, it never goes well. So we need to ask and evaluate as we finish. What does the Lord define as essential? And am I craving that? What does the Lord define as essential, and am I craving that? Like Esau, who is famished for the bowl of stew, are we hungry and thirsty for righteousness? Listen to what 1 Peter 1 says. God's divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Christ, who called us by his own glory and excellence. 
For by these he's granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that's in the world. See, we are usually satisfied with the small stuff, but God says, I have something that is far greater than you can ask or think because I want to make you a partaker of my divine nature. And how many know there's nothing better than that? Nothing better than that. So we need to think about priorities. We need to examine our decisions. Are they in light of holiness and righteousness and God's blessing? Or am I living for the moment?